Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. I'm excited for you to hear today's conversation with Tim May. Tim is a licensed professional counselor and the program manager of substance use services at Northwestern Community Services. Tim is responsible for program development, implementation, and provision of substance use services at Northwestern, which covers the counties of Shenandoah, Page, Frederick, Clark, Warren, and the city of Winchester. Tim has been providing substance use services since 1999, and you'll soon hear how very passionate he is about providing quality care to the people in his community. In this conversation, Tim and I discuss stigma around substance use, the connection between prevention and treatment, how to support a loved one in recovery, and the importance of self-care. We recorded this episode amidst the pandemic, so Tim is joining me via Zoom. Tim, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy you're here with us. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm just going to jump right into our questions. Uh, The first thing I want to ask you is you've had a long career in substance treatment and recovery. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the work you currently do and the path that led you there? Sure. So currently I manage and direct the substance use services at Northwestern Community Services. So that can, that, um, that's a wide um, variety of services um, from you know, early prevention to outpatient therapy services, um, intensive uh, outpatient treatment, uh, medication-assisted treatment, uh, case management services, peer recovery services. Um, let's see, what else? I, I think I said case management, um, substance-exposed infant um, services. So all services relating to substance use, I manage and direct. Um, and I think the second part of your question was what led me to this. Um, so I would say for me, um, you know, I've always, I come from a family. Uh, my father was a pastor. So I grew up, you know, watching, um, watching him serve the community and help people. Um, and I think in undergrad, um, you know, I had exposure to substance use as far as with professors and providing treatment. So I was able to volunteer and do some practicum work. Um, personal experiences, uh, people I knew, um, so it was just a passion early on, um, and it was just something, um, the more that um, I would do it, the more I loved it. Um, and, um, you know, it's not a job. I love what I do. Um, and so, you know, from those early years in, in college, you know, I, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, and so when I was in grad school, um, you know, I continued um, studying substance use, um, volunteering, um, and then eventually doing internships and, and getting employed um, at a program. So it's something that I've always done, and, and I love what, you know, I love it. I love that it sounds like it's just this passion has continued to grow over time because 
on this Awareness to Action podcast, we really try to talk about how usually the desire to make a change starts with just a little, a little piece of interest and then grows. Um, so I'm wondering if you can speak to what helps you to stay engaged and passionate about the work. Yeah, for me, it's easy. You know, I've always been someone that um, sort of rooted for the underdog. And I think um, the individuals that we serve, there's a huge stigma um, on those individuals. And, and a lot of people view them negatively. Um, you know, a lot of times the perception is they're never going to change. And so for me, I just have a passion, you know, to, to jump in with them, um, support them and walk with them. Um, trying to support them any way possible um, to try to see change occur, you know, and support them. So for me, you know, it, it's it's always about, um, you know, just walking with them. Um, and it drives me every day. You know, when I, when I see individuals walk through our clinic, it motivates me. Um, when they're in that door, you know, I know we can, we can be present with them and we can assist them. So, um, you know, every day it motivates me. It's not a job. I love it. And I think all of my staff's the same way. And they motivate me because they all have that passion. I think that's the best part about working with humans is that they yeah. continue to surprise you. They continue to show up. And I don't know, it's just, it's a different and exciting every day. It is. And I would say that, you know, some people may argue me, but I think the population that I work with are some of the most authentic people in the world. You know, um, uh, what you see is what you get a lot. And, and I love the challenges, uh, uh, you know. And so, so yeah, it, it's very enjoyable work, very satisfying. So I think a daunting component of getting involved with anything is feeling like we don't know enough. And I'm hoping you can speak to how your own knowledge and learning has grown over the years to, to have you at the point that you are now. Sure. You know, when I first started, um, you know, substance use is a field that slow is slowly progressing. We, we sort of stick to our old ways and we don't like to change, which is sad. Um, you know, so when I started, it was, you know, a lot of uh, treatment was based on accountability, punishment, um, you know, sort of that belief system that, you know, if clients knew what they were doing, they would change. So we have to, obviously, they can't make the decision, so we have to do it for them. So it was very punitive. Um, and man, I wish I could go back and change those early years. But what I learned is, you know, that doesn't work, you know. And so gradually over the years for me, um, it, it really became, you know, just meeting people where they're at. Um, and walking with them and having that relationship. And, and you hear that a lot in grad school where, you know, it's about relationships. But I think early in my career, um, you know, you're, you're really focused on theories and techniques and theoretical orientations, um, and you kind of get fixated on that. And so as I've gotten old, <laughs> uh, you know, to me, it's, it's just about the relationship. And you know, walking with these individuals, um, not giving up, um, you know, treating it um, as a disease, you know, treating it as a medical disease. And, um, and I think that's where I've grown the most. Um, and, you know, and I think we're seeing the field 
come around to that where we are treating it as a disease, where we are treating it like diabetes. Um, so, um, so yeah, that, that's where I've come from. You know, I give examples when I speak all the time. You know, when I first started, um, you know, if a, if a patient was late for group, we didn't let them enter, you know, because we said you need to be on time. And, um, you know, you think about that and think, you know, if, if you're 10 minutes late for a physician appointment, they don't kick you out. You know, they still provide treatment, but we were so hardcore. Um, so really for us at Northwestern, it's, it's really treating it as a disease, treating addiction as a disease, you know, changing our language. We use such negative language when we're working with individuals in treatment. Um, you know, some of the old language was dirty and clean. If someone had a urine screen and it wasn't favorable, we said it was dirty. And if it was a good positive urine screen, a favorable urine screen, we said it was clean. And, and I say all the time, if you get lab work at your physician's office, they don't come out and say, you know, um, your lab work's dirty, you know? And so, so there's that huge stigma, um, you know, for me, and that's changed over the years where, where we really look at changing our language, um, just changing how we do treatment, you know, meeting folks where they are, understanding that um, when someone gets in treatment, there may be setbacks. Someone may relapse. It's not the end of the world. You know, um, we all have that in our life. Anytime we're trying to make a significant change and someone in treatment, that's huge, man. I'm so proud of them for taking that step to address that. Uh, but we all in our personal lives, when there's something really significant that we need to change, I doubt if any of us change overnight, you know, there's going to be setbacks. So, so again, you know, early on, I was sort of driven that here's the goal, this needs to happen. And I think now it's more realistic, you know, let's meet people where they're at, let's care for them. Um, you know, the analogy I give a lot is um, I'm an outdoorsman, a, a fisherman, and I, you know, I say all the time, you know, our patients, uh, you know, are steering the boat, and we're on the boat with them with our arm around them. And, and you know, to the right of the boat may be rocky waves, and in front of them may be you know, really rough waves and to the left may be calm seas. And if they decide to go where the waves are, we're going to put our arms around them and try to help them steer the boat where it's calm, you know, but we're never going to leave their side. We're going to support them. So long answer, but, um, you know, it, just for us at Northwestern, it, it's about meeting folks where they're at. A long answer, but a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really grateful that you mentioned language because language can be so stigmatizing. I'm wondering if you can offer some examples of positive language to use when discussing substance use disorders um, so that they can maybe have some ways to change their words and their rhetoric. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just treat them like people. They're people. Um, you know, um, when someone's trying to lose weight, we don't use all kind of negative language. We're all proud that they're trying, right? Um, and we use positive language because we want to encourage them. So, so I think going back to, you know, um, like language we use when they, when they give screens or, or we say, you know, they're in treatment. We don't use the word addict. Like, you know, I, if you have high blood pressure, they don't call you a hypertensionist or whatever, right? You know, they call you a Tim with high blood pressure or whatever. So, you know, that has high, you know, so, you know, just changing the language as far as, you know, they're human beings, calling them by their name, you know, they're in treatment. Um, you know, uh, 
I, I do a whole thing on language, you know, because our language is, it, it's so negative the way we've used it in the past. And, and again, if there's anything that, that people can take out of this, I think just understanding the stigma that the individuals that we work with face, you know, um, a big stigma they face is, you know, one of, you know, one of the biggest evidence-based treatments right now, and it's a tool in our toolbox that we can use is medication assisted treatment. There's, but you know, some some individuals uh, that's on medication assisted treatment, they're scared to say anything because people will say, you know, it's a crutch. You shouldn't be on medication. But where else do we do that in any type of, of other types of uh, diseases? You know, if you're diabetic, you know, we don't say it's a crutch that you're taking medication or if you're taking medication for hypertension, you know, we don't say, well, if you lose weight, you may not have to take a pill, right? We're okay with that. Or if you have depression, anxiety. Um, so I think, you know, again, for me, um, but then also for, for my staff, you know, it, it's about getting rid of all that stigma. Um, and I think our patients see that by the way we interact with them. You know, they feel like a human being. They don't feel dirty. They don't feel like they're, you know, a moral failure, which was a lot of how treatment was viewed back in the day and individuals that were in um, treatment. It, some people thought, you know, it's this moral failure. This is a bad person. Um, and at the end of the day, for me, you know, that's somebody's son or daughter, you know, um, you know, um, and, and gosh, you know, I want to treat these individuals with as much respect and, and care for them and offer, you know, offer them the best treatment possible. Absolutely. And, um, I just want to offer to our listeners the idea that changing your language is such an easy way to get started in just really being more empathetic and compassionate um, for people who are in recovery. Um, that's like a, just a really great place to start, I think. Yeah. You know, and we, again, like with relapse, we don't really use relapse a lot. We'll, we'll say, you know, it's a setback. Um, just, um, because it's not the end of the world. Um, in the old days of treatment, you know, if someone had a setback and used, it was, you know, it was the end of the world and it meant they had to go to inpatient treatment. And, you know, that's not, you know, that's not always the case. Um, so, so yeah, we work really hard on language. Um, yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, Tim, I know that you come from the treatment realm, but in yeah. our department, we love to talk about prevention. Sure. Um, are there things that can be done to decrease the rates of substance use disorders in the community? <laughs> a million dollar question, right? I think, um, yeah, I think uh, any type of prevention work, you know, in the schools, any type of education, um, first and foremost, is important. I think parents um, being open and having conversations with their children, um, honest conversations. I, I think with, uh, with everything in our lives now being so stressful, I'm not sure um, how many conversations are had at the dinner table anymore where, where, you know, where everyone's there because everybody's busy. But I think, you know, the schools, and I hate putting more on the schools and individuals in the schools, they have a lot to do. Um, but I think any type of prevention, education, work in the school system, educating parents, um, and also encouraging parents, um, you know, to talk to their children, to talk, um, and, it, and again, um, not from really a punitive nature, but where you can have open, honest dialogue, um, where your children um, feel comfortable having those conversations. Um, 
I think Virginia as a state has done a good job in the past three years of opening up more resources uh, for individuals seeking services. I think that's a big thing for reducing maybe use or, or at least um, helping individuals get more treatment. So they've um, created um, the arts program, which has opened up more services to individuals with Medicaid. Um, so I think um, also increasing services, making it easier um, for providers to provide services. I think all of those things um, can certainly play its part in, in reducing use. There are so many different ways to come at something that's happening in the community and affecting a lot of people. And I think that's why treatment and prevention are so exciting because there's so many avenues for people to get engaged in the work. Um, for someone who doesn't feel like direct work is really their thing, but does an amazing job with community education, there's a place for them in this work. And I think that's just very hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, the more we can do uh, about reducing the stigma, um, you know, a lot of times that happens when it hits close to home, right? <laughs> so you may have a certain view and then maybe you have a family member and all of a sudden that changes things. You know, for me, think all the time before I had kids, you know, I'd be in Walmart with my wife and we'd see kids running around and, you know, having a good time. We'd say, that's never going to happen. We're not going to let our kids run, you know, but then you have kids and your, your worldview changes. Right. Um, and that's the same way I think we can, can work with prevention and educating our community. You know, um, obviously when it hits close to home, it changes things, but also just educating our community that, um, you know, educating them on, on recovery, educating them on treatment. Um, you know, I read a lot, you know, I used to read posts on Facebook. I try not to do it anymore when there would be arrests or something. And some of the posts, you know, was like, you know, throw that garb, you know, it would be someone arrested for drug use or whatever. And it would be, you know, throw the garbage away or, you know, it was just so negative. And, um, you know, and I think just educating, um, our community on what's out there, that it is a disease, that it's not something that you go to one group, one group and you're, you know, magically cured. You know, this is a process. Um, this is a process that takes time um, and, and what it takes to support someone in treatment and in recovery. So I think all of those things can really assist, um, you know, our communities. I think it's really important that you highlight the time and patience that it requires. Um, I know multiple people in recovery who have said that they didn't understand the phrase one day at a time until they were walking that path and truly taking it one day at a time. And I think that's important for anyone engaging with anybody in recovery to remember. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, in my experience, I think anyone in treatment is probably stopping substance use is probably one of the hardest things you can do in your life. You know, I think losing weight's easier. I mean, I think there's all kinds of changes. That's a lot easier than that because you're talking about physiological issues, uh, psychological components, biological, genetic, you know, it, it, it's tremendous. Um, and it is one day at a time, you know, um, and for us as treatment providers, you know, um, it's walking with them every day, understanding that there can be setbacks. And, you know, one of the things that we encourage our patients is don't ever get too high, don't ever get too low. You know, let's try to stay, stay kind of balanced. 
Um, but recognizing, you know, we're all human beings. We're going to have good days. We're going to have bad days. And, and when we're having bad days, making sure um, that we recognize our support, what, what can help us. Um, and obviously, um, I think our peer program really lends itself to that, where our patients have um, individuals that's been there and done that, that's in recovery, that's certified. They can reach out, um, go to a meeting with them, just go to the park, hang out. Um, but, you know, um, it is one day at a time. And it's not something, again, um, you know, I tell people all the time, it, it's, it's not a magic pill for this. You know, it, it's, a, it's a lifelong process, um, but you can do it. And I see people doing it every single day, and it keeps me, keeps me going. It, it, it's great. You mentioned some of the factors that contribute to a substance use disorder. I'm wondering if you can speak to some of the commonalities you've seen during your years in the field regarding those factors that, that can contribute. Yeah. You know, I say this all the time for me, I've been in this a long, a long time. I'm feeling really old. Um, and I think when you're in this, I would say my peers would agree with me that we've always had a substance use problem. Like always, like for me, it's always, you know, I hear the word epidemic now, but to me, we've always had an epidemic. It just kind of changes with what drugs the epidemic, right? Um, so I think the factors now are the, obviously with the epidemic, um, with, with COVID, the pandemic, I should say, you know, that's obviously playing a huge role now with isolation and we're seeing increases, um, you know, with individuals just not being able to get out and do things. But um, I think stress, I think um, one of the biggest things for me is hope. You know, I think when individuals don't have hope, um, that's tough. And I think a lot of our individuals we work with, um, they've lost hope, you know, they don't feel like, um, they can make it. Um, you know, they feel, uh, their self, their worldview, their self view is very negative. Um, so I think, you know, obviously there's biological genetic factors, but I also think there's the hope factor. And when, when you take hope away from someone, that's, that's a rough place to be, you know, that's a really scary place to be. And, and so, you know, for us, again, you know, part of our role is to, to try to shine that light of hope, that there is hope you can make it. Um, so I guess to answer your question, I, I would say the same factors 20 years ago are the same factors to now, you know. Um, but obviously with the pandemic, I think we're seeing more, you know, we're obviously seeing more overdoses, more substance use. Um, isolation plays a huge role, right? Because we're social beings. We want to be around people. Um, so I would say those are some of the common themes uh, in my career. Um, but I, I would say if, if I could say one word um, that, that most of the people I've worked with is, is just that self-worth and hope sometimes, you know, with all the other things going on in their life that can kind of contribute um, to substance use. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of interconnected factors for sure. Yes. Um, recovery can be defined in so many ways. I'm curious what recovery means to you. Yeah. Um, gosh, uh, I could talk all day about recovery. Um, you know, for, for me, recovery, um, you're getting better. You're improving your health. You're improving your wellness um, uh, to achieve your goals. Um, and, and I would say it's, it's like recovery from a broken bone, right? Um, you're recovering, you're getting better, you're learning, you're taking all the tools that you learned and you're applying it to your life so you can have a, uh, 
a great life. Um, again, recovery is one day at a time. Doesn't mean you're in recovery and you're not going to have a bad day, right? Because you can break your leg and your leg's still going to hurt at times. Um, but, but for me, um, you're learning all those tools and you're applying it to your life. You're, you're applying it to your emotional well-being, your physical well-being, your social well-being. Um, so I was saying a really short definition. That would be my you know, definition of recovery. So how can a person that hasn't experienced addiction support a person who's in that recovery? Yeah. Um, again, um, for me, I would say uh, just just being there for them, being present, um, supporting them, um, having a you know an open mind when they call, um, non-judgmental. I think um, if if you're, you've not used or you're not familiar with recovery, any type of education that you can learn. Um, for me, the American Society of Addiction Medicine (ASAM). Any material that's produced by them, I think, is really good. I'm volunteering. You know, we, we'll take volunteers. There's a process at Northwestern. Um, but I think any of those things um, that I mentioned are good ways of learning more about addiction, learning more about recovery, which then better helps you assist someone that's in recovery. Yeah, those are great resources. I'm also wondering if you have input or perspective on how a person can support someone who's in active addiction? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I, I, I get asked that question a lot, um, you know, and I'm going to give, I'm going to give two, two answers and they're probably the same from a treatment perspective and from a parent um, as a, a parental perspective. Um, for me, again, it goes back to recovery, being present, being supportive. Um, <sighs> not losing hope, um, you know, walking side by side, um, recognizing it's a disease, recognizing, um, you know, um, I, I tell our staff all the time, you know, an individual can have a hundred setbacks. hundredth and one might be the big change where they make drastic change. Um, so I think, um, again, just being present, being supportive, being hopeful, um, trying to offer as much resources, as many resources as you can for the individual. Um, recognizing the toll it takes on you. So obviously um, taking care of yourself. Um, you know, and there's different theories, you know, where, you know, there's sort of the hardcore theory, maybe from a parental perspective that says, you know, I'm not going to enable them. Um, I'm not going to keep giving them money. And I recognize that. I understand that. Um, again, I think it's the unconditional love, just loving them, being present, um, where they know at any time, you know, I can call and have a listening ear. So, um, I wish I had the, the golden answer to that because I think, you know, but I think again, um, just being present and, and that can un unconditional, um, compassion, I think is huge because the patients recognize that the person recognizes that. Um, and I think you can do that without a name. I think you can do that without being taken advantage of. So, um, because they know if you care, they know if you're going to walk side by side, you're going to be there with them. Absolutely. Um, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that while you're supporting someone in recovery or active addiction, you also have to be caring for yourself. Um, and I know we were talking about that sort of in the context of if you're supporting a loved one, but I know that some of our listeners are people who are working in this field. Um, and I think, any person working in the field of uh, substance misuse would agree that the work requires 
a lot of patience and creativity and compassion, which is great, but also requires a pretty deep well to pull from. Um, where do you see the importance of self-care in your work and how do you incorporate it into your life? Yeah, I think it's very important. I think um, clinicians are very hypocritical. We talk about it all the time, right? And we get so enmeshed in our work, sometimes we, we forget that part. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things I'm huge on with our staff. I'm mandated. You know, I, I'm every supervision. What are we doing to take care of ourselves? Are we taking time off? Um, because it's a necessity. We have to do it. Um, you know, for our staff, um, you know, we're dealing with life and death every single day. You know, we're, we're dealing with individuals that relapse uh, or that overdose um, and could pass away. Uh, we're dealing with stressful situations. So it, it's critical that we take care of ourselves. Um, and, and for me, you know, I always say self-care does, you know, a lot of times I'll hear, well, I'm going to go home and spend time with my family. Sometimes that's not self-care. That can be really stressful, right? Um, and so what I always say is self-care is self-care, self, right? So what do you do to take care of yourself? What activities? It could be reading a book, taking a walk, um, painting, just sitting in a room doing nothing. Um, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an outdoors person. So, uh, you know, I love getting out in the mountains and hiking. I'm a fisherman, uh, a bass fish. So I get my bass boat, go to the lake. Um, but I, I think whatever it is, I think as staff and as people um, doing work um, with substance use, you know, we need alone time. We need time to, to, to refuel, you know, to get ourselves balanced again. Um, and, and again, it, it's, it's, it's huge, um, what, what it can be, but I really think it needs to just be that person by themselves doing something. Family time's great. Um, but, but you still need that alone time. So, so, you know, and it can vary with individuals. Some people, you know, once a week, some people every day, um, you know, for me late at night, I'm by myself just in my living room, reading watching that's my time to sort of recenter too. So, but it is critical and we have to do it. It's so critical. And uh, I appreciate you talking about how broad self-care can be because I think we used to have a, like a definition or image of self-care that was like bubble baths and yeah. <laughs> I don't know, very, I mean, maybe, <laughs> Hey, I'm not trying to, if a bubble bath is what feels good for someone, right, great exactly. for them. But I think we've been able to broaden the definition of self-care. And I think that's just beneficial to everyone to truly be able to choose what works for you. Yeah. You know, when I was in grad school, self-care, the image of self-care for me was like yoga, right? And I'm like, man, I, I can't do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is very broad and, and it's whatever brings you peace and whatever brings you relaxation. Um, I think our staff does a really good job. Um, you know, our staff does funny things, uh, you know, in group meetings where, you know, just things to, to make it enjoyable, to make it fun, um, because the work can be stressful. Um, and I think our patients see that. They see it. They see us having a good time. They know we love what we do. Um, and I also think it's really, really important to teach our patients that, right? To teach them self-care, to teach them um, ways of, or for some of our folks, they they don't know what to do for fun. They, it's been so, you know, for some of them, they'll say, you know, Tim, the only thing I've ever done is drugs. Like, I don't know a hobby. 
Um, so working with our peers and staff, um, helping them identify things that's fun to take care of themselves. So, so I think it's important for staff, but also I think it's important for our patients to do it. Yeah. And then walking the talk of, I'm, I'm going to tell you as your right. counselor to do this, I can't go home and <laughs> not right. practice any of it myself. Right. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Um, so you have touched on this, but most of us are impacted by addiction in some way. We, mm -hmm. most of us have some connections. So for an individual wanting to understand more about substance use treatment and recovery, maybe for advocacy reasons or personal ones, what other tools or resources would you recommend? I think, um, you know, a, uh, an organization like Northwestern, um, reaching out to Northwestern, we have staff, um, we do trainings all the time. Um, our staff's always willing to talk to family members, um, you know, just individuals from the community. Um, you know, it, it's very common if I speak, uh, after I speak, I'll get phone calls. Tim, you were talking about medication-assisted treatment. You know, tell me more about that. So I think, um, you know, reaching out to organizations, um, reading, uh, you know, the ASAM material, volunteering, any type of, of work, uh, any type of facility, you know, read into the facility, um, you know, making sure, you know, it's a place you want to volunteer, but if you know they do good work, um, you know, volunteering, getting information, um, I think are all really good um, opportunities to learn more about this field, certainly. That's great. Thank you. I'll, I'll be sure to link um, some of that information in the show notes for people so that they can learn more and I'll link Northwestern's information. Sure. To you. Absolutely. Um, so now it's time for the question we ask all of our guests. What does the process of awareness to action mean to you? Hmm. <laughs> Million dollar question. Do I get, a, do I get uh, money if it's like the best answer? Yeah, awareness, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? To me, I guess it's gaining insight, knowledge, um, awareness, so you can take action. So you're more uh, educated in the action that you take. I don't know. Is that a, is that a good answer? Ding, ding, ding. Great answer. <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, Tim, thank you so much for being here and for the work you do in our community. Again, I'll make sure to include the information for Northwestern uh, in the show notes so that people can reach out if they feel like, you know, treatment might be helpful for themselves or a family or a friend. Absolutely. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Make sure you subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can stay up to date with our latest episodes. We'll be back in two weeks with another great conversation.